Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak once again with Soren Johnson. To get a full introduction of Soren, please listen to the previous episode, where it's part one of our conversation, and there's a lot more to unpack here in part two, so I won't waste a lot of your time, but I do want to take a moment because this represents the 50th episode of Think Like a Game Designer. We now have a community of tens of thousands listening to the podcast every month and almost a million downloads. That is incredible. When I started this podcast, I just wanted to share the fun design chats that I would have with my friends and fellow designers, and now we have built a community of people that are now coming up to me with designs that they've come up with, saying hello at conventions, and being able to build their own communities of designers locally. I want to thank you all for being a part of this journey. I love doing what I do. I love the opportunity to get to talk with these great designers and share these lessons with you. One favor I would ask, if you do get a chance, please leave a review for this podcast or share it on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps to grow the community and it helps me to get more and more exciting guests and lessons to bring to you. It is my honor to be able to continue to grow this community and build on the creative lessons here. And without further ado, we'll continue to do that with part two of Soren Johnson. Hello and welcome. I am back with Soren Johnson. Soren, this is exciting. We get to do a part two. A part two. I know. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember where we le- where we left off? Yeah, I do. I do actually. So this is funny. So we're about. I think it's like a, a month or six weeks or so after the first recording, which is a, a kind of a rare opportunity. I've had a, a couple guests on multiple times, not very many. Basically, I think you're just in the the, the Richard Garfield is I think the only one that comes to mind right now that I've had on twice. Uh, so you're in good okay. company. But uh, but those I'll, were very those that. were years apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a totally, totally different, uh, totally different process uh, because we're talking to have very different topics. And, and what I want to do is build on what we talked about last time uh and then really dig into your time with mohawk and your kind of transition to to kind of founding this company and what moves forward there uh i'm very excited about a lot of parts of that but what i want to start with actually is the uh polytopia because in the last time we spoke you recommended that game to me and i played it maybe a dozen or so times so i've got a lot of interesting insights now that I'm yep. really eager to talk about because I thought you you were right that it broke down the genre into a very very concise form right which is something I really love and I always admire but it was so short that I lost a lot of that feeling of epicness that 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 kind of 4x genre uh, uh entails and so yep. I had ideas on how to potentially approach this and you being the foremost expert on the subject i wanted to i wanted to do a little design brainstorm with you if you're open to that yeah that sounds great definitely so what what polytopia does and again for most people listening if you haven't already listened to the previous part one of 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 our episodes then some of this won't make sense so i encourage everybody to go back there but the the gist of it is that it's a 30 turns 
limited version of this kind of civilization style game where you start with one city and a unit and you quickly evolve till you get to a certain point and whoever has the most the highest score at the end wins instead of a kind of full complete dominance and what i found that i was missing is that the the jumps between eras was so you know just happened so quickly that i didn't get that that feeling like each era was its own discrete thing that was meaningful. And what I was, what it made me think about was, cause this is something you talked about as being really important. Uh, you know, could you accomplish the same goal by doing something closer to say play five or six turns in the bronze age and then have some series of broader choice points that then like advance you up to, you know, whatever the next era of that you want to deal with. And then we go to the, you know, kind of, to the meaningful, you know, to the industrial age and we go to the modern era and there's maybe like four or five eras and your performance in the previous ones then jumps you forward in a different way. Uh, what do you think about something like that where you're still going to have this 30 turn ish cap, but it's broken out to give you that more formal feeling of each zone of each era. Right. Um, so do you mean that like literally it'd be kind of like a, a succession of different games? Like, like one game kind of leads into the next one, but the app is actually different or I'm just trying to understand what you're suggesting exactly. Yeah. My, so my, my goal is to you know keep a game within this, like let's say under two hour to play window and right. have the feeling of progressing through eras. So it is, it is, it is sort of connected where the, the results of era one, maybe you're fast forwarding a hundred years or whatever in time. And then you're now era two starts based on the results of era one, plus maybe some variants or some, you know, kind of large scale decisions that you make that influence where you go. Right. Um, and would you be, would, would you kind of be starting, starting over again in a different type of map? Is that, I am envisioning it. I'm envisioning it as the same map, but you know, sort of imagine that your all of your cities now evolve so that they don't look like Stone Age cities anymore. They look like you know medieval era cities, and your you know your axe throwers become knights, and your you know so like everything kind of evolves to make sense in the new era. And then maybe there's a few more you know a few more cities that will develop by default, or a few more like there'll be some some advancement that will progress along a track that you would expect. And the, you know, the visuals are updated and the tech is updated. And, right. you know, I know like I didn't actually play it, but I know Civ six had this, you know, the idea of like after each age progressed, you would then in the next age, you'd be at a golden age or a dark age or something, depending right. that your, your, your performance in time X influenced your, you know, advantages or disadvantages in time right. X plus one. And I, I was thinking something like that, but, but sort of more dramatic in the sense that your, your whole you know, not necessarily right. have to change the whole map, but certainly evolve it from where it was. Yeah. Um, so you're talking like kind of a, a, a time skip almost. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I'm trying to think through whether that's any different or any, any better than kind of the way Civ normally handles this, which is just they kind of just have all those change, changes rolling on at the same time. Right. Um, and uh i mean i'm sorry there's like 
five or six things bouncing around my brain all at the same oh, time. Oh no, I just I kind of just ambushed you with this like crazy yeah, concept. Yeah. So I'm not it's, expecting uh, any particular direction you want to take. This is all good. I mean, I'm and I and I also just want to acknowledge like I am you know longtime player, but no design experience in this space. And you have the most design yep. experience of maybe any human on the planet in this space. So right. uh, you know, feel free to tell me this is ridiculous, but it's fun to fun to play. And while I have sure, your, while I have sure. the time, I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun with this. Yeah. So I mean. Basically, the the epic version has been around for a long time, right? I mean, that's that's the way Civ One worked, and that's the way a lot of forex games do by default, right? And the problem is that there's there's just kind of inherent issue with a game that goes on for five hundred turns, right? That's just a lot of Correct. time. It's hard to tell what's going to happen over the course of that game. Um, it's just it's just really hard to balance. And beyond that, to try to do something that Polytopia does, where it's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna cram this into like forty turns. Like that's that's really intense. And like when you when you crack open Polytopia, one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it's not just that they boiled everything down to one resource, right? Like there is no science or production or growth. Everything is just these stars, right? But um, if you think about it, like there is actually no per turn production, right? Like that's one of the core ideas of almost every 4X game is your cities produce something every turn or your nation produce something and boxes fill up. Right. Um, that actually doesn't happen in Polytopia. Like it's, it's sort of like a, um, a shark, right? Like a shark can only survive if it swims forward. Right. You only, you only develop stuff if you continue to expand, right. Or grow like every, everything you add to the map gives you more stars, which then you use for more stuff or more technologies or more whatever. But if you just sit still, like nothing happens, right? You won't, you literally won't develop, right? So right. everything is like a question of like investing your current resources into something, something for the future. And so like, if you look at that game abstractly, that's, it, it's really more of a kind of sort of I don't know, almost like a 40 turn push your luck game. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but like, a, or a 40 turn, um, you know, engine building game basically. Right. Or not even engine building, because again, you don't get anything. Um, per turn. So it's just a question of of like how to maximize your score. It's like a score chase game, which has a very different feel from a Civ game. Um, and I, I'm trying to get around to is the, th the first thing that popped in my head when you mentioned this idea is um, I don't know if you've played either PAX Premier or Oath um, because uh, both of those games, those are both Cold Worthy games, um, and they both kind of deal with this concept a little bit in that um, uh, in in Oath, you know, you you it, it's meant to be kind of it feels a bit like a historical game in that you you play out like the the reign of an empire and there might be usurpers or rebels who try to take it down and at the end of the game it's it's sort of theoretically a legacy game but at the end you um you basically preserve a little bit of stuff from the previous game to to give you the starting point for the next game um, but not everything and you don't really. The, the people who play the game don't necessarily carry forward anything. They just they just play a new role in the new century or whatever. But it's kind of like if there was this this windmill that was important in the previous game, it's now still there on the map in the next one. And maybe it's a ruin or something, right? So it gives you a different context. And that's kind of interesting. But what was really what really makes that work is that you're you're still kind of like starting over again each game. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's the thing that that's the thing that I would think would be interesting is if you you do ha if you could make a game where um, you know kind of like Dark Ages are 
kind of built into the the whole concept of like okay there was the bronze age and then there's some sort of bronze age collapse right then there's the iron age and then there's the dark ages and so you know if you if you made i mean if you made some sort of essentially like legacy version of civ where you're kind of like constantly starting or over but you're able to carry a few things forward from the past game like i think that i think that would be yeah that's exactly that's exactly yeah that's exactly the kind of thing i'm thinking of i think it's i think it's great it's like you know that it doesn't start over is, is maybe a stronger term than i would use but it's it could be as it could be very close to that potentially right so um i i uh i'm i'm, I'm what comes to mind is a kind of hilarious different style of game but uh if you ever watch the amazing race uh this mm-hmm. uh, the reality show right they they have you know a series of challenges and somebody can be way out front somebody could right. be way out front compared to the other people like hours and hours and hours ahead and they win that leg but then at the end of the leg there's like you know the people the top two people only have like a 15 minute advantage over the next people. Right. So it's, it compresses each leg so that it's still a close race every time, which also addresses one of the other problems of Civ games, right? Is is there, there's such an exponential growth curve of resources that if you're out front at the beginning, the odds are pretty good that you're going to be out front, you know, throughout the whole thing. So this gives you a chance to be like, okay, yes, you, what you did in phase in the iron age matters, you know, in the medieval age, but it's not like, you're totally crushing. So, so almost exactly what you're talking about, I think, is you know how much you could carry over, what what you know what what the gap is, and what the types of things you carry over. I think obviously would need to be tested and developed, but that idea I think would be pretty compelling. It's interesting because there's no reason you couldn't do this with digital games because you know in a lot of ways digital is a lot more flexible than tabletop, right? But um, I think it's interesting because for the most part with digital games, they kind of are in one category or the other. They're kind of like this big, these big sprawling games that kind of go on forever. Um, or they're very much single session where you start over again, you know, where somehow, you know, I think the, the development of the legacy games uh, for tabletop has opened up this kind of really interesting category where people have, have this expectation of like, okay, we're going to be playing a similar game over and over again, but there's going to be a little bit of carryover, right? I can't really think of any core, like, anything that's doing that in digital that's similar but uh, ro- roguelikes or something along those lines right yes okay yeah yeah absolutely no that's 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 totally true um i'm kind of thinking in sort of like the multiplayer context um and uh but i guess what i'm getting at is it actually seems to me like that's a really good we, theme. we should probably we should probably define those terms a little bit I, we've had those discussions on the podcast in the past, uh, but maybe just so people that don't know, um, uh, if he, if the term legacy and roguelike, what, what you, would you mind uh, doing a brief little what does that what does that mean? All right, so roguelike um, roguelike descends from the original game Rogue, which which was this sort of dungeon craw- ASCII dungeon crawler from the eighties, and what it's basically come to mean nowadays is a game that's heavily procedural. And also has a heavy amount of like consequence. So permadeath is a like kind of an important aspect of that. That um, you know there there's a good chance that you're going to die, and it's kind of the type of game that you play over and over again. Um, and you know you're going to probably fail most of the time, um, but also it's going to be heavily randomized. So every time you play, it's going to be very different, right? Like Spelunky is a great example of like a modern. Reinterpret- reinterpretation of a roguelike because they basically made like a, a or Derek Yu and <clears throat> made a um, uh, a randomized version of like a Mario type game, a platformer, 
right? Um, and you're going to get different different weapons each time, and different different objects and different items. Um, and uh, that's kind of been applied to a whole bunch of different genres now uh, in the um, in video games. So things like Slay the Spire is, uh, or Into the Breach are kind of very much uh, roguelikes, even though they're they're kind of very different different types of games. Um, yeah. And the and the fact that and I don't know if Rogue did this originally because I, I all I know is that, that, that this idea that you you um, a lot of these games carry this that you carry something carries forward from right. from each instance to the next that there's some amount yeah. of progress or some amount of remnant which is why it's relevant to this discussion. Um, yeah. Not all games do this, but some do. Yeah, interestingly, that's actually kind of a contentious point. There's actually a like I forget the term for it, but there's like a like a Vienna definition of, I forget the exact term, but like at some point there was a meeting where they like literally define, defined what a roguelike meant. Right. And this is Ooh, secret council yeah. defining the meanings <laughs> of words. I love it. Yeah. Some heavy, heavy gatekeeping, but that's actually to the real hardcore. That's actually one of the things that they kind of dislike about where roguelikes have gone is they kind of feel like roguelikes should not have any persistence that, um, the, old, the, the thing that's persistent is your brain, right? Like your understanding of the game has developed, right? Um, but that's not a very mainstream endeavor, I think is the way to put it. Like the way that, that roguelikes became more accessible and more mainstream is that they did stuff like, I don't know, like Dead Cells does, where you slowly unlock, as you play, you unlock more and more stuff and you get slowly more and more, you know, these you get these little tiny upgrades and over time the game, and Hades is a good example of this as well, the game kind of like just kind of sort of pushes you forward because you unlock stuff and you get some persistence. So in some ways that's actually a very different version of a roguelike. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, it's it's the one I brought up and I intended for this purpose, whether the council yep. is going to come hunt me down now or not. Um, uh, yeah. And and you mentioned legacy games. For those that want to know more about legacy games, check out the episode uh, of the podcast with Rob Davio, who's generally credited with kind of creating the genre and just the basic idea that you, you play a board game. Normally, at the end of the board game, you just reset it back to the beginning here. You something you did in that game permanently changes the game. So the next time you play, it's somehow different. I think would be the the simplest yeah. way to define it. And so now yeah. we're applying these principles to circle back a little bit here to this four X style civ- civilization style game where you could instead have these micro versions of the of civ experiences that get you and evolve to the next phase somehow. Yeah, and I think the legacy format actually would be a very good model. It would it would take a lot of work because I know legacy games take way longer to design than sort of you know regular board games, um, but it would be a very good model for someone if in, in the sense of like okay the players are going to come to the game and they already had the expectation of like okay we're going to go through all of world history but it's going to take us ten play sessions right and we're going to kind of reset every once in a while right uh, or uh, every once in a while we're going to kind of reset some each session. And we're going to carry a little bit forward, and that's kind of the point, right? Um, like, I think I think that actually would be a pretty good, a pretty good setup that would, ironically, I think, be a lot easier to do in tabletop because I think you really have people. People are much more prepared for that mindset. Um, there hasn't really been it, it. There's been some attempts to make like a four X's that are a little that are a little bit more like roguelikes, but they haven't. Uh, there hasn't really been a great example of a, a success in, in that category um, to some extent because, you know, people still kind of feel like 
forest games should be these these epic things that take you through everything you know we, yeah with 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 old world we definitely get a lot of people are like oh i had a lot of fun playing the game i really enjoyed it but uh you know i feel like it's missing all the rest of world history you know and it's like well why <laughs> why is that you know like why why do you feel like you need that and uh it's yeah that there's a lot to discuss there with like audience expectations and oh yeah like it's a the, huge 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 deal here right so 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 on the one hand it's incredible to be able to take from different genres or find ways to encapsulate small you know the sort of the gems from a single genre in a smaller experience under a different medium and on the other hand you've got you know all of the the weight of expectations of the fans of a given genre or a game st- game style and then you're going to inevitably disappoint some of them by trying to cater to this or carve out a new audience with a new you know whether it be a hybridization of two different genres or a reinterpretation of a of of, of something which is again I, I love that space personally i think it's like some of the most fertile ground for design uh, but you know some people uh, get mad at me for it, so I, I deal with that as I, can, as I need to. But I, I yeah, recommend yeah. it. It's, it's a great, it's a great exercise. And again, it's more, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't necessarily thinking you and I would start actually making this project. Although, you know, maybe. But uh, I thought it'd just be fun to because it was, I was very top of mind for me, and I thought it'd be fun to just kind of talk through a little bit uh, here because I think I think there's this subtle distinction between, you know, maybe it's just a, a spectrum. Something whereas I think of a legacy or or a roguelike in the in the loose definition as something where you know this game is over but something you did will stick around and influence the start of what is essentially a new game and i think right. here i what i what i'm saying or what i'm pushing towards is not this game is over it's this phase of the game is over some things are reset but it still feels like the same game that you're picking up at a fast forwarded timeline and it's a yeah. you know that may that may be a subtle distinction but i think it could be an important one again when, when i started from the premise of wanting to build a game that i could i could traverse the arc of time uh in 90 minutes <laughs> rather than yeah, you know right, 20 right. hours and so uh, the, the, played, the, the jumps mattered yeah yeah have you have you played history of the world the uh, board game no okay uh, have you played small world yes okay History of the World is basically Small World. Well, History of the World came first, but Small World is actually they're both. I think they're both based off of Vinci, another older game. Um, uh, but History of the World is is kind of like Small World in a historical context, right? Like you know how in Small World you might be the Wood Elves or whatever, and then you become the uh, I don't know the Forest Giants or something, right? Um, in history of the world, you play the game over seven eras. In the first era, one person might be the Babylonians, and someone else might be uh, the Egyptians, right? And someone else might be the whatever the Chinese dynasty was at the time, right? right. And you kind of you play through your the, the rise of your empire, and you have a certain amount of like kind of power going into it, right? You have like okay, you're going to be able to you have like six forces you know, six moves basically on the board and you're going to see how far far you can advance. And then it goes to the next epic and you basically then draft for the next set of empires and some of them, and it's not at all balanced, right? Like in one epic, in epic two, there's uh, or whatever, in one of the epics, there's the Romans, right? And they come with like 25 units essentially, or 25 moves, which is way above everyone else. So it's somewhat balanced by the fact that you, you, you draft it based off of who had the least amount of power in previous in previous turns. And there's also kind of like diplomacy to pull people back together. But at any rate, 
I love the game. I think that it does, it does, it's the only game I've played like that where it actually does kind of look like world history because what you have is these big empires come, come up, come into play. They blow up on the world. They conquer a bunch of territory and then they stop and you move over and you take over. some. because at that point it kind of has this kind of idea built into it that there's a certain, I don't know, vigor to a, a, a nation, right? There's a certain expansion phase. And then, then at some point there's the decline phase, right? And you don't actually play out the decline phase. You just like stop and you move to be a new empire. And then you're essentially conquering all these old empires that are still sitting around on the board. Right. Mm. Um, and they don't necessarily do anything. They just sit there to be conquered. Right. They just slow you down. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think it works really, really well. Um, and it kind of feels like a legacy game before there were legacy games. So I think actually that model really would, would merit some investigation if someone wanted to go down this path. Okay, great. Well, we'll we can leave that there for any uh, aspiring designers that want to pick up uh, where we've left off. Uh, I think you and I probably both have enough projects on our plates right now, um, <laughs> right. but it's but it's exciting. And yeah, okay. So I wanted to I wanted to to, to go there because again, I rarely get an opportunity where I have a conversation with a designer. They recommend a game to me to address a problem, and then I get a chance to play it and come back and then you know discuss the inspiration. So that that was fun. Um, yep. So what I wanted to do is is also pick up. Um, you know, I, I had a huge amount of stuff from my notes from our last time when I wanted to talk to you about, we didn't really get a chance to get to because we had so much deep diving done. Um, and, and, and really I kind of want to get to the story of, of the founding of Mohawk games and what that process was like and how you kind of decided to make that transition. And, and then we'll start digging into some of the, the games that you make now and, and what all that looks like. Sure. Um, so, um, it's kind of odd to say that, you know, I mean, Mohawk has been around for about 10 years now. Uh, we found it in 2013. So, yeah, this is our 10th year. And um, so, you know, I'm kind of proud of that because I think uh, it's hard to keep a company going for, for 10 years. Here, here. <laughs> um, and um, you kind of think in retrospect that like, oh, he's very entrepreneurial or, or whatever. But but honestly, I'm, I'm pretty conservative in terms to, to risk taking. and. You know, I kind of, I very much like the idea of like running my own company because I tend to want to work on the stuff that I want to work on. I guess that sounds circular, but like. I want all um, the freedom and none of the risk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just that like, I've been, I've worked at various companies for the first for 13 years of my career. And sometimes I was able, what I was able to work on lined up with what Sometimes my projects lined up with what I wanted to work on, and other often, other times often they didn't. Or I was able to work on something that I wanted to work on, and then it got shut down for reasons that were outside of my control. Um, and you know that that was just that part of my work was pretty unpleasant, right? You know, like I had one game in particular um, that I worked on for about a year that the team loved in turn the place I worked at. We we played it like literally every day, and we loved the game. We we're really excited about it, um, and then the the publisher canceled the project for for, for various reasons. Um, and you know, it was you know it was you know it was heartbreaking. Like it was really really difficult on me. Um, and without that, those type of experiences, I probably wouldn't have who have um, tried to start up something on my own. You know, like if I had been able to make the projects I wanted to make in larger studio, I probably would have just kept kept doing that. Um, but especially in the days before, I think, I think now it may actually, strangely, I think now 
it might actually be possible to make games like this because the market is such more has diversified so much. But you know, back when I left for Axis in 2007, I think Steam had technically started, but it wasn't anything like it is today, right? They didn't really have third-party games on it. Uh, you certainly couldn't publish your own games on it. So there really wasn't an avenue for kind of these like offbeat games like Offworld Training Company and Old World, where you know, like it's 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 targeting less of a mainstream audience than you a lot of a lot of games had to target when you know they're they're with these big companies with these huge burn rates um so you know so if there's a period of time where i had to, you know i had some sort of general unhappiness because i wasn't able to make the games that i thought i cared about wanted to make i wanted to do stuff that was innovative right like that was that you know i felt like was you know was kind of be pushing pushing video games forward in especially strategy games um and um so you know worked at you know, worked at Fraxis for seven years then went to work at electronic arts i can't say i was very realistic about thinking that i'd be able to go there and be able to make the games i wanted to make um but spore seemed like a really cool project and it was a really really cool team um so went for that and then bizarrely i worked at zynga for a year and change yeah, so, so yeah and, and i know i started with and i definitely want to hear more of the mohawk stuff but we didn't we didn't, we didn't unpack that that time that much either and is, are there any kind of stories that stand out or lessons that you learned during those windows because again those are you know huge projects huge companies very different types of projects to some degree yeah that, that jumps out before we before we just leap past them sure um i don't remember did we did we talk about spore much I don't think so. I don't okay. recall us talking about Spore a ton. It's certainly an yeah. exciting project, which maybe just give a little bit of a... Yeah, so uh, Spore was Will Wright's, I guess, last big project at EA. You know, he had made SimCity and made The Sims, so he kind of, you know, put about, kind of puts him in a position where he can kind of has a blank check to, like, take some really big risk, right? Um, and he kind of cashed that check with uh, Spore, which is supposed to be this game about everything um, that takes you from... Uh, you know, there's you started like literally you started to sell single cell to multiplanetary, right? To a creature, then to a tribe, then to a civilization, then to um, uh, sort of a spacefaring race, and beyond that, like he had a concept that each of these levels were essentially video games. Uh, they mapped; they, they weren't just this evolutionary tree, but they mapped into the other video games, like. The cell level was supposed to be Pac-Man. The creature level was supposed to be Diablo. The tribe level was Populous. The civ level was obviously Civilization. Uh, and the spacefaring level was kind of like Elite, one of those type of games, uh, or maybe Star Control. Um, and uh, uh, it was it was a huge promise. It had this amazing uh, demo reel that was shown at GDC where everyone, where it kind of showed this kind of like scaling going from this tiny level to this big level. The you know the pitch of it was kind of a, was you know it was it is one of these concepts that sells itself really well right and um, and yeah I had kind of hit a I had kind of hit a dead end of Fraxis where I was like okay this is here's here's a couple here's a game here's 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 a game I want to make I'm telling you why I want to make it this is why I think it's important and you know they basically you know basically turned it down and they said well you know you could you could do creative direction on Civ Five right and um, you know, I think it's really sad because, um, I mean, I really love Firaxis and, you know, I had a wonderful time there. I think the, just the world of that company. And, um, you know, I don't think they were happy about ha telling me like, oh, you work, you know, you, you know, co-designed Civ 3, you were the lead designer of Civ 4. Now we want you to, 
you know, go back into the Civ coal mines, you know, and isn't it amazing how that progression happens, right? Where it's like literally like your dream job right. to be able to work on a Civ and then to lead design a Civ and then it's become the coal mines. Right. It's, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it happens to all of us. It's just an interesting progression, right? That, that, that too much of a good thing is, uh, is, it's, is, is the opposite. And, yep. uh, it's, you know, you're ready for the next challenge or the next thing. So anyway, yeah. just, just worth interjecting because it's an interesting thing most people don't think most people think that if they just get this one thing this one job this one promotion this one you know spouse car house whatever it is that then everything's going to be fine everything's going to be happy i won't need anything else and then you know inevitably there's another another hill to climb so yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's uh yeah it put me in a weird like after a civ 4 shift i mean i've I've heard other people talk about this when you know you have a project and everything goes everything goes really well it it is it does leave this weird situation. Okay, well now what do you do next, right? Like you can't do you, do you try to double down? Which, I mean, I, I put everything I had creatively, um, emotionally, et cetera, into Civ Four, and I'd say you know I'm so fortunate that it paid off, right? A lot of people are in situations where they do that and the projects don't succeed, right? Or maybe they get canceled, well, right? And yeah, and, so. Yeah. People have to face the canceling thing a ton, and all, very few people get to get to experience what you did, which is you know a level of overwhelming success and global accolade, and you know you know it's yeah. a it's a it's 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 sort of like you know you, you won the Grammy or whatever for your first album or you know right. second album, and now what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Sephora did literally win a Grammy, so oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so you actually that's a, that's a better analogy than I am than I thought it was. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I guess I just want to acknowledge that because I feel weird, like feel like I'm complaining about that position it put me in. But it, it it's more like I didn't have any creative juice left for the the, the franchise, yeah. you know. Like, and I didn't. I felt like also beyond that, like you know, we had the young designer, you know, John Schaefer, who was going to take over Civ Five, and I felt like if I was stuck, if I was going to stick around, I would probably just keep telling him why various ideas he would come up with wouldn't work. I'd be like, oh. ah, you can't do that because of this. But like, in you know, in reality, you have to try stuff, right? You have to, you know, like, yeah, maybe the idea, maybe the idea has problems, but that's game development, you know? So, oh, you know, that, I, that, that one hits close to home, my friend. That one hits close to home. <laughs> I literally, was just, I just had a meeting like this week where we're doing, you know, design on the digital app for Soulforge Fusion. And there's sure. a, there was an element where I, I had that exact thing for, oh, from my experience on Soulforge, the original 10 years ago, this isn't going to work because X, Y, or Z reason. Oh, yep, yep. I was like, oh man, I just did, I just did what you said shouldn't happen, which is the, the, the trap, right? The, I've, I've got experience, therefore I know. And yep. in fact, yep. what real, that, that iterative learning and that new, new blood there. All right. I'm going to go back and apologize to my team after this, but anyway, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough lie because obviously sometimes, sometimes you're right. And sometimes you're wrong. And sometimes it's not even that clear, right? Like it's just right. a question of like, well, we don't know. It's the unknown. Um, so yeah, I, I was afraid I was just going to be messing with them and not really contributing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think they wanted to put me in a position where I was kind of stuck doing this either. They just didn't necessarily have anything else for me. And and honestly, I wish I just had more patience because it would have been okay for me to kick back and just do kind of like high level creative direction for a couple of years and just, you know, just relax. I, I had earned it. <laughs> You know, um, but I was, you know, I was still, you know, I was the a young guy eager to, you know, eager to make my mark. So I was like, okay, I want to look for, you know, I want to look for something else, you know. And so still hungry. Like I, yep, still hungry. So like I interviewed at, I interviewed at Blizzard, interviewed at Valve, interviewed with the sport team, and the sport team was just full of just these amazingly talented 
uh, creative people. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it was a really, the project was, you know, fascinating. So, uh, and I went to school in the Bay area. So it was also like kind of really nice to the idea of like, Oh, that'd be nice to go back there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we, you know, we, we moved out and, uh, you know, I, I joined the sport team and it was a troubled project. You know, you real, once you got in under the, you know, got inside, you know, I saw the, like, Oh, actually there's really big problems trying to like kind of staple these different levels together. Um, and it really wasn't in, in retrospect, I think the, the initial pitch was actually not, was basically not actually a good idea. <laughs> like, well, it's like, like, I mean, it's so, it's so epic in scope. It's like, you know, trying to make five full fledged games that all interweave together and that are all in of themselves, complete projects that take a lot of work is, is a, I mean, it's ambitious is, is a, <laughs> is a small word to use for that yeah yeah i mean it's hard enough to make one good game and then also to make like five games where they also have this extra constraint of like oh and also the things you do in each one of them needs to be meaningful for the future levels right like that was something that would come up a lot of like oh okay maybe we can do this in the civ game but this doesn't have anything to do with stuff from the previous levels right you need to you need to feel like your decisions earlier actually matter by you get by the time you get to the civ level and um you know it's just it was just a really huge challenge and also kind of halfway through the project before i got there um they kind of like hit on this kind of idea of like player expression and creativity um and the one thing well i mean there's there's a lot of really cool things that did come from spore um but the thing that was probably the you know the most successful was the creature editor or just the editors in general. And the creature was editors was the best example of this, where you could um, model a creature in three D and this in all sorts of in it gave a great amount of power of like you know put your put the legs here, make them longer, make them shorter, change the color, change the head, change the shape, and the system would just figure out automatically how to animate it for you. Right. So no matter how many legs you gave it or what shape or whatever, it would end up walking in a way that looked normal and natural. Um, and that was really magical to people. And beyond that, it had this idea of like, oh, we're going to take your creature creatures and we're going to we're going to propagate them to other people's games. So if you played Spore, you would see creatures that other people designed. So there was sort of this, also this concept of like user generated content, you know, that that just kind of flowed naturally. Um, and you know, it was just a lot of really heady, crazy ideas. They're all kind of smashing into each other. Um, so there was a lot of really cool things about the project, but it, there was kind of a really big issue with cohesion. Um, so I wrote a long blog post uh, on my blog about that was kind of like my version of the spore post mortem. And so I mm -hmm. recommend if anyone wants to know more about my my general thoughts on the project, they go dig that up. Um, it's called uh, My View of the Elephant. Um, and like one of the lessons I really pull from that is that um, team cohesion is much more important than team quality, or uh, if that makes sense. Like oh, the actual, it does. Yeah, yeah, like the actual, I guess, raw talent or brain power or however you want to put it is much less important than just having everyone know that the direction they're going and then be and then and it's the type of game that, that these people want to make, right? Um, that you know the, the the issue we had with the sport team is you had you know they picked all these amazing individuals but some of them had the kind of like the the maxis sims creativity game as a toy uh dna right and then you had a lot of people like me who has had the more of the game as a game dna that you know the game should have some challenge there should be a resolution you could win you could lose 
you know, like have stuff that matter. Like one of the things that came up in the editors a lot was this concept of like, okay, yeah, we can create, build the creatures however we want to, but are you trying to like make the best creature, like the fastest creature or the strongest or the whatever? And every time we did that, what ended up happening, if, if, if we started going in that direction, then people were like, okay, I want to design my creature to have the longest legs or the this or the that. And people started, they stopped being creative, right? So they, they kind of like lost that part of the game disappeared. And so the, these, these two approaches were kind of like inevitably in conflict, right? And it was just difficult because I'm just not a designer who can really make a good game as a toy type thing. Right. And so I was in many ways kind of really out of place in the project, but they didn't really know what they didn't know necessarily that that was the game they were making when I came on board. Right. Or that was, that was kind of the best part of the game, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, that's why I like to say is that like, you know, what you, when you're hiring, you really want to think in terms of like team cohesion. Um, you know, it's very tempting to think of like, oh, we're going to put these people who have, you know, these these very different views together and, you know, they'll be creative. Um, I, 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 the word chaos comes to my mind. But I'm sure there's a better one. Creative like um, debates or whatever. And, you know, thrashing know. is a term that I, I like. <laughs> yes. It's yeah. A, that's... Seth, Seth Godin uses that term. And it's like you really want to get that. You, you want to thrash thrash early and often, yep. but then. Uh, where it's cheaper, uh, but it's gonna, yeah, you want to get your alignment quickly yep. uh, because once you start moving, it cuts, costs way, way more after. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, that, that's something I like to emphasize a lot when I'm talking to, to people putting teams together. Um, interestingly enough, though, Spore has sort of turned into kind of a weird success story over the years. Like, it's, it's, if you go to like one of those like Steam Charts websites, like, there are still like thousands of people playing Spore today. It's it's way more people are probably playing Spore now than any game other any other game released in two thousand and eight. Um, it's that that creativity aspect of it is still very, you know, it's a, it's a very successful, valid part of the game. Um, and I constantly run into people, especially people who tended to have been between the ages of like, you know, six and fourteen when the game came out to them, Spore was amazing, right? Like a game that, that didn't resist them and just let them express themselves. Um, they really, really love Spore. So it's, 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 it's been, it's been interesting to see that there's, there's, there's kind of this mismatch between what people thought Spore was supposed to be and what it actually was. I mean, there's a whole other aspect, which was that it was, it was at some point kind of sold as the kind of almost a scientific game, which was just bizarre because if anything, it was kind of like a, uh, God is like intelligent design type situation, right? Because you're literally creating everything yourself. Um, and there was, I, I guess you'd say there was a bit of a backlash on that, but it was just, again, it was just like this big mismatch between like what, what, what Spore was, was sold as or conceived as and, and what it actually was. Okay, um, great. All right. Well, so, so I'm glad we paused there because there was a lot of great content and then, yeah, people can go see the, uh, your article on my view of the elephant, uh, to dig, uh, dig deeper. Um, and, uh, so we jumped now, let's, let's accelerate. Cause I, this time I'm guaranteed I'm going to get to your Mohawk stuff. <laughs> I promise <laughs> it. I will be much more relentless this time, but yeah. I also, you, there's also a, a Zynga part of the story here. Yeah. Yeah. So I had sort of a, a shortcut through what were called social games at the time, which basically meant Facebook games. Um, and it's it's hard to explain nowadays just how kind of like hot these were perceived of back in 2009 or whatever. Um, 
but I made a little RPG called Dra- Dragon Age Legends in kind of like the, my second half of my time at EA, um, which was which was pretty cool. It was kind of fun to make an RPG, but I realized that I kind of accidentally designed an MMO, and like that's extremely difficult. It's <laughs> it's 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 really hard to be able to create content that that keeps people playing over and over and over again, where they aren't kind of restarting. Um, so I I uh, and I realized that I wasn't fully fully prepared for that and it it you know it did it did it did it did all right and it was it was it was fun to work on um but i kind of wish i had gotten a chance to do that over again from scratch knowing what type of game i had been trying to make and that kind of put me a point where i was like i really didn't know what to do next because i was at ea they had made this facebook game you know it did all right but it wasn't clear where i could make strategy games inside of the ea structure um and uh, you know, I had some connections with some people at Zynga, uh, especially Brian Reynolds, who was a designer of Alpha Centauri and Civilization II. Uh, he had kind of befriended me after, you know, I kind of had come up and, you know, did some, we're kind of in the Civilization Design Club, I guess, design. <laughs> it's uh, an elite group. group. <laughs> right. And uh, he had had some success making uh, Frontierville for, uh, for, for Zynga uh, out in Baltimore. And uh, he basically said, "Hey, you know, why don't you come on here, and we can uh, we can basically hide you here in the the Zynga East team, and you can just kind of prototype, you know, prototype something that could work on the web, right?" And so um, I prototyped this little, essentially multiplayer only version of Civ. Like I wanted like a game of Civ that you could play in your browser. Um, I made it with the Google Web Toolkit, and it was actually pretty cool. It was really really uh, interesting because you could just you just jump into the game with it, you know, you just send someone a URL and they would just pop into the game and there would be this, you know, grid of tiles on your browser and you'd move your units around and it was, it would run on like a 24 hour clock. Right. So you would get your moves every eight hours or 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever. And, um, you know, you, you, you know, slowly, slowly, you know, inch towards the other opponent, you know, your opponent. And uh, it was the first time I kind of experimented with the order system, which eventually came into, into being with old world. Um, but it was it was really just like a project that I made by myself with like a tiny bit of art help and like a a a, a, a server engineer who was you know available to me just to you know do the basic back end um, and so yeah it was this fun little experiment but it only lasted about a year because a year later the um, you know the <laughs> <laughs> the the social game boom was already starting to descend a little bit, and the um, uh, the the project the studio had made next, Civil Two, didn't do very well, and so it, as along with a number of other studios, started getting shut down. And so I was just essentially a um, a victim of of that, I suppose. But it wasn't it was fine from my point of view because I just I was able to I was given a year just to experiment with this kind of interesting concept, uh, which led to kind of some fertile ideas that I kind of used later. Um, but the upside of it, I guess, was this is the first time I'd ever been laid off, um, and the it kind of forced me to figure out what I really wanted to do because you know got laid off from Zynga. Zynga gave a very very generous uh, severance uh, package. So, you know, I was like, okay, I've got six months or whatever to figure out what I want to do. Um, and it definitely seems like just joining these other companies is not working out because they have, they have their own sets of priorities. Um, and beyond that, even if your priorities are aligned when you join, those things tend to change over time, right? Um, and so 
you know, I felt like, I, you know, I'm going to have a hard time achieving the things I want to, you know, in, in these other companies. Um, and so I started pitching, seeing if I could, I could pitch a game to, uh, you know, various publishers and, um, uh, you know, I already knew the, the game I wanted to make, which was Offworld Trading Company. Um, and I envisioned it as, um, I really loved real-time strategy games. There was, um, a period of time at Fraxis where, uh, we would play, uh, Age of Empires 2, uh, every day at lunch, just constantly. It was, it was just, it was just the thing we did. Um, and, uh, I remember when Age of Mythology came out, which was sort of the sequel, I guess you'd say, um. And, uh, and also I had a similar feeling when, when age three came out is, you know, I, you know, I got the game, played it and I was like, okay, this is really cool. There's a lot of cool stuff here, but like the, the very core of the game, like the, the, um, the dynamic of like, okay, I have to do this to do that. And then this happens and that, and that's a typical match was identical to the previous game. Like, yeah, sure. You're, you're moving around, you know, uh, in age of mythology, you're moving around, you know, crocodiles that shoot lasers out of their foreheads. Right. Like it's, uh, because there's like Egyptian mythology, you know, there's, <laughs> there's yeah, some, yeah. Some, some really new stuff here, but you're still like starting with a base and then you send some workers to gather some berries and then you build your first units and then you build another base and then you start building some knights or whatever, whatever they be, the heavier units, you go attack the other guy, the, 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 the arc of the match and the, 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 the sort of the inner core of the decision making was just the same thing. Right. And so I just didn't play the game as much because I'm like, I, you know, I've, I've actually kind of already played this game. Um, and, uh, you know, that it, it, it got me thinking about, um, well, okay, what do I actually like about RTS games? Uh, one of the things I really liked was, okay, these are, uh, I like the format of the game. Okay. This is a 20 to 30 minute game. Right, it's short. Um, it's um, you have to think on your feet. Um, it's you can play with you know two to eight other people, right? Like it's it's a game that works really well multiplayer because it's it's real time, um, and you know then there's a there's a resolution at the end. And I was like, okay, and it's it's strategic, right? Um, so like that's what I like. Clearly, there must be other ways to make games that fit that format that aren't just a game about building a base and then doing a tank rush. Right. Um, and one thing that, that popped in my head was, um, one of the programmers at, uh, Firaxis, a guy named Mike Breckreitz, um, made, started messing around with map scripts for age of empires. Um, which means that the, the age of empires, unlike a lot of retail strategy games has random maps, uh, which is something that, to me is very important. Almost everything I do has some sort of random app or procedural generation. It just seems like a great way to keep, keep games, you know, fresh and different. Um, and he came up with this map where there was normally a, a map of, uh, of age has a, has a few huge forests on it. So there's kind of like essentially an endless supply of trees. Um, and if you, um, you could theoretically chop down all the trees. Um, but, uh, it's the games are usually over way before that would be done. So he made this desert map where there's just a few trees uh, around the map, but there's tons, but the whole map is just full of gold and stone or whatever. And um, we played this game and you, we were used to playing a certain way because it's like, okay, 
wood is easy to get, gold is hard to get, right? And naturally, some of the best units in the game, like the the knights, they cost a lot of gold because gold is the is the less common resource, right? right. Suddenly, here was a map where that's flipped, right? It's hard to get wood, but you get it's easy to get gold, and we and you could see that like early on in the game, we were failing because people hadn't adapted yet. People hadn't realized, okay, actually what I need to do is make as many knights as possible, right? And then, you know, you, we could see like halfway through the match, then people were like figuring that out, trying to build as many knights as they can. And then the 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 norm, the norm unit that normally countered knights cost a lot of wood, right? Because that's like a spearman type unit. And then it's like, oh my, oh, the, the normal counter isn't available. Okay, what else can we do? So you can see that everyone was like thinking on their feet and like they were they were having to like adapt their strategy. And I was like, well, this is amazing, right? <laughs> like, like yeah. this is a great experience. I don't want to play a game where we're just doing a specific build order. Um, so I was like, okay, well, how can I get more of that into an RTS, right? Uh, and beyond that, like I had this, this thing of like, I, I don't want to make, I don't want to make a game. I don't want to make a combat game, right? And so I was like, right. okay. So, so RTS is re- this real-time strategy, and instead of the more classic examples like your, you know, Warcraft and Starcrafts, you want something where it's a little bit more of a economic or civilization battle. So, right, right, exactly. And then, and then there's a bunch of other games that I kind of was also thinking about, like uh, Railroad Tycoon um, had kind of like a, a really great kind of idea of like kind of like the, the resource tree. You know, you get the the cat you take the the wood to the paper mill then you take the paper to the whatever the the the, you know the goods plant or or whatever there was you know these like two or three step processes of of moving people and i you know uh uh raw materials around and to finish goods and then moving them back and forth i was like oh that's really neat there was this very old board game called belter from the late 70s um uh from uh you know one of those like spi type companies i think it was gdw um that was about exploring this asteroid field and kind of like discovering these resources and then putting mines and then sending and then shipping the shipping the 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 ore or the gas back to a market and actually had a thing where every time you sold something the price went down and then between turns the price could go back up based off of various random things um and age and age of empires also had they actually did have a a market building in the game i mean this was the other thing that was really fascinating about that map where there was all sorts of gold but very few wood, very, very little wood. There, there was this market building in the game that you could build and you could go to it and you could buy wood, right? You could, you could say, okay, I'm going to, you know, take my gold and convert it into wood and the price would go up and that price would be global. So if you bought wood in your market, the price would go up for everyone else in all their markets. And we could really see that was super interesting in that, in that game we played on that map, because normally what you're doing is you want gold, so you're selling your wood, you're selling your stone, you're selling your food, you're driving down the price because you really want gold, right? And then if the if the price gets low enough, then then it kind of switches and people are like, okay, actually the price of food enough is low enough now that I want to start buying, right? And you got right, so that. This, is this core tension of the value of every resource is dynamically being adjusted based upon what players are doing throughout the right. whole loop. Yeah, yeah, that's, and in, that's interesting. Yeah, and in this game that we played where it's like, oh, there's not enough wood, suddenly the, the price of wood just kept going up, you know, 100, 150, 200, 250, 300, like this, we just never seen that, we didn't even know, like, it was like, is there a cap on these prices? Like, what, <laughs> what's going to happen, right? And Runaway like, okay. inflation, danger, yeah. danger, call in yeah. the Fed. Exactly, so I thought <laughs> that was really interesting, and so I was like, I want to make a game that plays in this area, that that is 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 all about this idea of like this, this, 
you know, global market. The prices are dynamic. The prices are going to change every game because you're going to have these random maps with different, you know, different sets of resources all over the place. You're going to have these these resource chains where like, okay, yeah, you can get the water and sell the water, but maybe instead you want to take the water and turn it into food. Or maybe you want to split the water into oxygen and fuel. And oh, maybe you want to turn the fuel into chemicals. But that's a yeah. very multi-step process. So probably most people aren't going to do that, which means that the, the chemicals are going to get really expensive, right? So maybe you'll aim to do that from the beginning. And, oh, you should also probably watch what everyone else is doing. Um, yeah. And, you know, go ahead. Uh, sorry. I mean, I'm interested because I, I, I realize I have to I have to be more ruthless than I want to be to get through all the stories with you because there's a lot of great ones. Uh, but it's uh, I'm curious now. So you've got this. this I understand the core tension of this game and this the concept for it. Now you're in a position where you were laid off from uh zynga and you're you have a six month window to build a thing slash pitch it to a publisher to get funding to build the thing i want to i want to i want to i want to hear a little bit more of that arc the side of outside of the the core mechanics of the game we know what you're trying to build what does it look like to be trying to build it because i I imagine there's a lot of people out there that are the same situation and i could tell the story where people that get laid off it's a disaster it's crushing whereas you framed it as what i think is another is a great opportunity that's a great opportunity i've got this window now to do what i want to do like what is it what is that process yep. look like yeah so that's that's why i kind of talked earlier about how like like it's I, I don't know exactly how to tell my story because i'm actually somewhat conservative i'm not really a big risk taker so i kind of had to be pushed to do that and beyond that um i think it's amazing every time i hear about these teams where like oh we quit our job or we did this thing on their side we built this game and uh, we got, you know, we got publishers interested or we sold on early access. We got some players. Or we sold it on our website. I think that's amazing because I, I because of my success with Civ 4, I was able to basically um, shortcut that whole process. Like I was able to get a publishing contact, excuse me, a publishing contract uh, from Stardock, uh, which is a, a strategy game uh, publisher and developer. Um and I was able to get a publishing contract based off of essentially my reputation and our, my pitch for the game, right? You know, I was like, this is the game I want to make. You know, I've had success with Civ 4 and I'm ready to start prototyping it. And I, you know, I was able to get the money before building the game. Okay, so um, so so just I want to unpack it a little bit because obviously you know, reputation, big success is under your belt, and this is something I recommend for everybody that wants to start their own company. Generally, like you know, work for somebody else first, learn the lessons there, build a rep. This right. is exactly what I did before I started my own company, uh, and uh, and so you have a reputation, and then you how many publishers did you pitch to? You didn't have a prototype at this point. You just had a like a pitch right. deck of some kind. Like is it, what 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 was you know to to go from okay, hey, look at me, I I'm, I made Civ Four and all these other things, uh, to okay, here's a big check, go. Yeah, I mean, honestly, not that many. Um, I had already developed a relationship, um, uh, you know, with 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 Brad and and Derek at Stardock, um, uh, previously, um, because they had, uh, um. Brad reached out to me when I was working on Civ because he his company makes makes Galactic Civilization, which is a somewhat similar game, and we just kind of like traded stories and ideas and various things back and forth. Um, and so he'd already kind of made it clear that like, hey, if you ever want to make a game, like consider consider working with us. Um, and uh, 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 Derek, um, who 
uh, this is Brad Rodell and Derek Paxton. Uh, Derek, who became sort of head of development, I forget exactly his position exactly, but he, you know, Brad basically hired him to kind of run the studio. He actually kind of became gained his notoriety in the industry um, uh, from working on a uh, probably the most famous Civ Four mod, which is called Fall from Heaven, which is essentially a fantasy conversion. Yep, I've played it. It's great. Yep, yep, it's a really great game. Fantasy conversion of Civ Four, um, and uh, you know, I kind of had gotten in contact with him um, uh, as that mod became more and more popular. And I believe, like, basically, a version of it was actually included in our, the final uh, expansion pack for um, for Civ Four, and it had a uh, you know a big mod team, and you know, he was a you know he was a well known presence in the community. Um, and so, you know, he eventually came to work for Yeah, by by the way, just sorry to interrupt again, but this is for, again, for those listening, looking for your, your route, right? So this, the story you're telling is the, you know, I, I had a great success at Civ 4, now I'm starting a business and doing things. This, this idea that you just take, you be a part of a modding community, make a great game using the tools provided to you, be active in the community. You can immediately use that as a way to rocket yourself into, you know, a known quantity and prove, you know, really it's such an incredibly powerful tool set. So sorry to interrupt, but I just think it's, I don't want to skip over that because it's really important for for people i think it's a it's a it's one of the better ways to i think nowadays to kind of get your feet wet and design and, and really test out your ideas yeah absolutely i give people that advice as well i mean derek's a great example of the success you can you can have when you do that because it's really hard to build a game from scratch you know and if you have a lot of design ideas often it's a lot easier to to build off of on top of another game um and yeah fall for heaven is a is a, is a great example of that um and yeah, so I'd already basically I had these really good connections at Stardock. I did talk to some other uh, publishers about you know a couple of different ideas, um, but you know they basically said like, hey, yeah, we can we can give you a few million dollars to you know make this um, you know found your found your studio and uh, make make this game make uh, what I called you know, Mars or whatever I didn't know what it was called, but eventually became Off World Training Company. Um, and, and 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 so so okay so hey we're getting a few million dollars and uh what is it what is it because i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the relationship between like developer publisher like you're a different company but they're giving you the money to fund the thing and what maybe like what is that either you could talk about your specifics or maybe more broadly just so people understand what that relationship looks like sure um so it, it was kind of a very traditional uh, sort of publishing deal. Uh, we were able, like, um, in the sense that what happens is they give you X amount of money. Usually there's a set of milestones in that, okay, we're going to give you this amount of money over this period of time, and you're going to get this chunk of it every so every so many months, and it's going to be contingent on you hitting certain milestones. So oftentimes there's a way a publisher can say, like, okay, if you haven't hit this milestone, we're going to we're going to pay you a kill fee, and we're going to stop the project, but then you can shop it around to other publishers right um but it, it is it is that idea you don't get just this giant check of money right at the front it's like this is we're going to be kind of paying you as you go and then it's, it's it, as much as you can you want to negotiate your own control over the project right we we from the beginning we said like, okay we're we're going to own the ip for awful training company so if you know if something happens negatively this this will still be our game we can go do something else with it if you're not going to be the publisher right um and then the um the financials look like there's going to be some percentage royalty um that's 
that where the revenue is shared between the publisher and the developer. Um, and at the time, and this was fairly normal at the time, um, our percentage, it, it kind of treated that advance, the money we got, it treats it basically as a loan. So let's say, let's say we get a 50%, uh, let's say we get 50% royalty. You know, if we get half the money from the uh, from the revenue of the game, that money goes to pay back the loan, right? Um, and so essentially, if we got, you know, X million, if, if we had like a 50% royalty, if you get X million uh, in an advance, the game would have to make twice that much before you or it pay off the advance. Um, and... Uh, it's it's a difficult model to actually make money on for a from a developer, honestly. Um, but you know, from my perspective, like you know, I I at that point was just a <laughs> an out of work developer, right? So, <laughs> yeah, and so, it, yeah, so I go from making no money for sure to yes. getting paid to make a game and maybe making money down the road. That yeah. does seem like a better deal. I mean, you get yeah, yeah you you de risk the situation. You get somebody else is taking all the financial risk to make a game. It makes you know some of it makes sense. I think the models evolved a little bit since then, but but it's not yeah. unreasonable. Yeah, the model has evolved a lot, a lot, and we did actually have some stuff in the in the uh, original deal that. Um, like DLC, like revenue from DLC would go directly to us or our percentage of the revenue from DLC would go directly for us, from us so that um, it made sense for us to continue development of the game as opposed to the money from the DLC still going to pay back the advance, um, which I think was a good, a good forward looking uh, clause um, that we, that they, well, we together just you know, wanted to put in, in the contract. And I see um, most people know what this is, but DLC is downloadable content. So yeah. kind of like add-ons and additions to the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think since then, like nowadays, the 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 models, um, uh, um, the model has become more developer friendly over time. Like even just like a few years later, it kind of moved to this model. Like, okay, actually, probably all of the revenue from the game should go back to pay that initial advance. So you pay back the advance first. Like a hundred percent of the revenue should go to pay back the advance. So you pay it off faster. So if you get X million as an advance, once the game has made X million, then at that point you start actually getting revenue from the game. Um, and now we're kind of at a point where, where there are actually uh, a number of uh, publishers who will give you um, a certain percentage of the revenue just straight up, right? Like, okay, some of the revenue is going to pay back the advance, but some of the revenue will, will just flow directly to the developer because publishers realize the developers need money to keep working on the games. We, we're no longer in this world where you finish a game, you print a CD and you mail it off and you hope for the best. Right. Um, you know, really the, the actual release date is almost sort of like an arbitrary date on the, on the calendar. Um, so, yeah. That, I'd love, I'd love, I'd love for you, you know, it's, it's, it's jumping around a little bit, but uh, yeah, fleshing that out a little bit more detail because I think people, most people don't quite recognize this and it's been a big evolution over time in the development of games that this sort of, you know, live ops or variations of, of ongoing development are, are, are just critical to a game success. And maybe, maybe we can unpack what that means a little bit more. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've seen kind of over the last 10 or 15 years, seen kind of like the boiling of the frog change, I guess you'd say of, of how uh, the business model between publishers and developers have changed kind of in recognition of the reality of how games actually get, get to consumers now. Um, because the idea that, okay, you make a game and it has to be kind of as perfect as possible when you ship was, you know, just kind of like a, 
it, it wasn't because we were necessarily had very high standards for ourselves as developers. It's because we had no choice because we were printing something on CD. And um, if we got it wrong, it could be catastrophic. You know, I remember we discovered a kind of an important bug, like at the 11th hour, I mean, 11th hour is even right at like 1159 PM, right before sending off the uh, disc to the, the, to be pressed um, for Civ 4. And I remember like we, <laughs> we had a semi-serious discussion about using a helicopter to try to like, <laughs> to get the, get the fix ahead of the, the, the actual, uh, the original disc that got shipped. Um, and, you know, eventually we, we, we kind of like backed off and said, okay, this is, we can still patch a game. This isn't, this is, this is not something most people experience. We'll just have to, to have to live with this or whatever. But, but basically you, you, you had a higher standard for yourself because you had no choice. You had to really, really try to get it right the first time. Um, but as soon as we went to digital distribution, even whether we realized it or not, we were now moving into this world of like live service, right? That because you can patch the game every way if you want, every day, if you want to, it meant it meant a number of things. It meant that there was no longer going to be this arbitrary line in the sand of like, okay, you know, pencils down, the game is over, right? Both in terms of of um, you know of in terms of like, okay, you don't you don't have the fixed point, but also that like, yeah, and guess what? You can keep working on the game, you can keep improving it, you can keep doing that stuff, and there's also a way to do that to make more revenue, right? You can make you know, you can do DLCs, you can sell scenarios, you can sell, you know, new versions of the game, you can spell sell expansions, you can do all sorts of, do all sorts of things. And it was just one of these things that like, there's, there was just no going back from that. Um, I yeah. mean, this is, this is a lot of ways where free to play games come from as well. It's like, okay, if we can sell stuff after people are playing the game and after we, we release it, then we can make games, you know, we can just make them free to download. You know, that, that would have made no sense, you know, before, before digital distribution right yeah there are so there are so many aspects to this right i mean one it, it's you know it's a boon in the sense like i said like you know free to play games you know say what you will about the downsides of the genre the idea that people could play so much get so much content for free is is pretty amazing and then you know you monetize afterwards and then there's this this uh you know what what ends up being i think a pretty big downside in reality to to designers which is you're never done right like like it's yeah. always the hardest thing to say pencils down on a project and you know with a still with physical board games at least there's hey this is going to print like it is done you know yeah. you're it is out there you know you can you, and uh, but with digital games that time is just gone and yeah. now it's more of a it's more just a marketing decision whether you call a game you know alpha launch beta launch real launch post launch <laughs> dlc patch one you know yep. it's all just it's a very fuzzy space now yeah we actually literally at our we had our we have a weekly design and tech meeting here at, uh, at the company and we literally this week had a discussion where we're like okay old world has been out for a year now it's doing really well we're making dlc there's like maybe three or four different you know ongoing projects right there's people are working on a, a bunch of different things for the game um that's all really great that's really important but if you're not necessarily working on one of those DLC projects, it might be time to start thinking about whether what you're whether what you're doing is the right thing for the company, or whether you're just kind of like you're just like a zombie, kind of like lurching forward, continuing to do stuff on old world just because that's what you did last week and that's what you did the week before, right? There's always more stuff to work on, right? But at some point, you hit like 
diminishing returns of like, okay, yes, this is, this is a, this would make some small improvement to the game, but it's probably something that only a tiny part of the audience would see at some point. We do need to actually like kind of force ourselves to like pull off of the old game and actually start working on the new game. It's really hard to, you have to, you have to kind of get back to having some sort of arbitrary line. When does new world release? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's it's a fascinating series of discussions, and it's something you know. Again, we're we're wrestling with now as we're we're building. You know, we've just kind of rebuilt our digital team and are building out the digital version of Soulforge Fusion, as, as you know. And and it's all the, these different aspects of you know, obviously the game we haven't released it yet, so clearly there's plenty to do. But you know, at what point is the diminishing returns on this? aspect of the game and how many other features do we want to develop how much do we want to devote resources to new things versus uh what we've worked on before it's it's a continuous evaluation there's no easy answers right you just need to kind yep. of i think you, you have it right that you don't want to just by default to keep doing the thing you were doing because you were doing it but really just you know at least periodically pick your head back up and look around and say okay what is what's going to be the most you know likely high return for my time uh, within the company yep. and which projects i work on Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, so since we started talking about Old World, and since we can never uh, finish uh, talking about everything we want to talk about, I want to I want to dig into Old World because I know you guys just released an, an expansion or a DLC uh, for it. Yep. I think yep. uh, it's a. It, it, I think we've we've talked a little bit about it, but maybe let's give a give a give a you know kind of top line for people a, a little elevator pitch for Old World uh, in general. Sure. And I want to talk about some of the things that are maybe a little bit more controversial in it that are interesting to talk about. Sure. So I wanted to make Offworld as as kind of the first game because you know it was kind of like a um, you know it was a really odd pitch right like an RTS without combat I know it was going to be very different I, I kind of knew going in like okay this is a fairly niche game so I could probably I probably need to make it with a, with a really small team but I also knew that like okay if if Mohawk is ever going to kind of make you know like a big game you know one that kind of you know sort of puts us on the map so to speak right it it it, at some point, I may want to think about going back to, you know, making a a bigger 4X game, right? And I probably want to do that as our second project because at that point, we'll be more established as a company, we'll have more experience, we'll know what technology we want to use. Um, you know, I just felt like, and you know, beyond that, we'll be in a stronger position to to pitch to publishers to to get more money, right? Because we knew that we we're going to need more, a lot more money to make make Old World than than. It would cost to make Offworld, um, and that's kind of the way it it sort of worked out. Um, with uh, you know, Offworld shipped, uh, did pretty well, um, and but it didn't do so well that we could like use the money from Offworld to make Old World. Um, that's like a whole that's a whole another tier of success. Um, that's that's still very difficult to get to, um, uh, especially because. You know, we had relied on funding for for Offworld, so you know most of the revenue went to pay back you know pay back the money it cost, and then you know it still took a while for for profits to make make their way to us. Um, so, but again, like it was not that difficult for me as a designer of Civ three and Civ four to go out and and pitch a game saying like, hey, I want to make a historical four X game that you know pushes the genre forward and does this these these you know interesting new things. Um, uh, that this time through, you know, we probably, I probably contacted, uh, 30 publishers, maybe 30, maybe even 40 publishers to see who might be the one that's most interested in, in this game. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew 
going into it that I wanted to mess around with orders. That was kind of the thing that that was like the big learning from that project at Zynga. Um, that, uh, um, uh, you know, the one that was on, on the browser because that, that had an order system and it, it was really interesting. Like it was, it was actually invented mostly just to kind of deal with the idea that this is a game that's constantly being played, that like it's being played in real time. Like my initial, initial idea was like, Ooh, every, you know, you get an order every hour. Right. And um, it would just kind of build, you'd build up a little bank of orders. And anytime you log on, you'd have a number of moves to make. Right. Which was kind of, you know, inspired by, you know, kind of the energy system that was uh, seen in a lot of uh, social games where every time you log- logged on, you'd have a certain number of orders or energy. Um, and of course, <laughs> for uh, social, for Facebook companies or whatever, Facebook game companies, the reason they did an energy system, what, probably the biggest reason is because they can sell you more energy. Right. Um, right. And I, yeah, you're gated. I, I didn't have any interest in that. I, I wanted my game to be still like, you know, a quote unquote regular game um, in that the, the orders that you get is part of the game economy, right? Like you start a game and you get a so much each turn and, you know, you can build new buildings that might give you more orders, but like, it's still part of the game itself. There's not this outside game thing of spending money to get orders, but uh, the, the project never got far enough along in Zynga where I had to have that that argument with a product manager about <laughs> whether <laughs> whether we would resist selling orders or not. And so it's probably all worked out for the best that, you know, the, the project. Yeah, never spoiler got alert, you would not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so but fortunately, I discovered that like, oh, but but like taking orders and putting it kind of like slapping it on top, on top of like a game that's otherwise very much like Civ was fascinating, right? Because it really opened up how you could play the game, right? Like, and so you define, you define an order as, as, as a time gated number of moves that you're allowed to make. It's a move, right? So like in the really original version in like the, the web-based thing, like every order was a move, right? And you get a move every hour, we deter- we learned over time that that was like that was way too crazy because then people felt like they needed to log in every hour to make a move. So eventually we kind of moved to something that's more player friendly, which is like okay, maybe once a day or twice a day you get a chunk of like twelve orders or something like that, right? Um, but also when you logged up when when you get those twelve orders, you can use them however you want to. If you want to just move one unit twelve times, you can do that. If you want to spend them twelve your twelve orders on twelve different units to move them each once. That's fine too, right? Um, and you know, we learned these various things of like, oh, you can't just let people attack over and over and over again with the same unit. So because that's kind of crazy. So we you know, like, yeah, you can move a unit multiple times, but if it attacks, then it goes on cooldown for twelve hours or something like that. It can't attack again until tomorrow or something like that, right? Right. And so you know, I was kind of learning all these little lessons of like, okay, how to make an order system work in a more tr- in in a way that might work in a more traditional civs type four X structure. So that was like kind of like the very beginning concept of old world of like, okay, let's make a game like Civ. I kind of already knew also that like, okay, probably we want to limit it to the just one era. And probably initially, it's hard to remember the order of these things. Probably initially, the reason I wanted to do that was simply that um, we're a small company. We can't afford to make like jet fighters and modern buildings and whatever. Like we need to, we need to limit ourselves to just one era because we want to keep our costs under control. Right. Um, but like, yeah, let's just start in the, the, the era that everyone loves the most in Civ, which is the ancient era, 
you know, start you out with a, with a settler and let's just, you'll have a few units and we'll give you some orders and we'll just see how the game plays out and we'll build it as a multiplayer game at the very beginning so that we can play test it as soon as possible. Even though that we, even though we knew like eventually like 90 to 95% of our, our players are really just in it for the single player, you know, we, we, we believe that like iteration is really important for game development. So if you can at all possible, and this is true for, this was true for off-world training company. It was also true for Civ 4 way back yep. in 2003 yeah, you, you, or 2004. You talked, you talked about that a lot in our last uh, episode yep. as a really key insight um, that, that, that multiplayer allowing for, for iteration and testing way faster and earlier than you would have otherwise was critical to your success. Yep. So we did that with old world and that, that worked out really well. Like the game, you know, developed, uh, very quickly, and um, we were in a position, unlike with Offworld, where we could start developing the uh, pro. That's another thing. We were able to develop a prototype without having the funding. Like we did at least have enough money in the bank where I could kind of go off on my own, work on work on Old World. It was called Ten Crowns back then, um, while um, the rest of the team was working essentially on the expansion and DLC for Offworld. Um, and so like, I remember making like a little pitch video where I showed myself playing like the first 10 minutes of the game, you know, which we could, we could send off to different publishers. Um, and, you know, we talked to a whole bunch of them. Uh, eventually the, the best offer we got was from a publisher called Starbreeze, which is a Swedish company. Uh, they make the payday games and they were making a push into um, publishing back then with, in, with a very good very good terms because they were originally a developer and they're kind of like, we're a developer. We know what good terms should look like. So we're going to start offering them to basically teams that we really like. So they funded Psychonauts 2. They funded the the, the System Shock 3 um, and uh, us, uh, uh, Old World, because we were seen as like, okay, you guys are a, a Civ uh, spiritual successor. So basically kind of like new versions of games by the... Uh, you know some of the the key creatives. You know, right. Reasonable, reasonable strategy to de-risk, take proven teams and sequels to games people love, and yep. hopefully those are more likely to succeed than random new yep. projects. And uh, I mean, I guess I might as well get into it now. But <laughs> as a complete sidebar, uh, Starbreeze ran into these serious financial difficulties, and they yep. eventually had to go through a restructuring process. Uh, they emerged from it and payday three is on the way. It looks like they're going to do well, uh, which I'm really hopeful for because they were actually a very, they were a great group of pe- group of people to work with. We really enjoyed uh, uh, the people who work with the Starbreeze, a lot of great people there. Um, but they had, I, I don't, they, they took on some really big projects that didn't work out, um, which can sometimes sink studios, but fortunately uh, within Within Swedish law, they were able to to work their way through the process of uh, putting their company back together and you know radically uh, downsizing. But part of the downsizing meant that they publishing other people's games was probably not going to work out for them. Um, so, um, so the um, uh, uh, Michael uh, Neymark. Um, uh, was the the person running the studio at the time, uh, and he, he sadly passed away a couple of years ago. But he was a, he was a wonderful wonderful person. Um, he helped us through that process of giving us a uh, a nice separation deal where we would we would give a small percentage of the revenue of the game uh, that would eventually come out back to Starbreeze to kind of pay them back for uh, the money they invested they invested into it. And at, at this point, they've made a small profit off of their original investment in, in Old World, which is which is nice. Um, but uh, um, you know, they were able to give us uh, back the, the rights to the game. We had, when we negotiated the deal, we were able to keep the IP um, because we kind of set ourselves as a standard for, I mean, 
again, they were making developer-friendly deals. We had talked to a lot of publishers where that was not on the table. They're like, if we're going to give you money for the game, it's going to be our IP, right? Yep. And that we is, really, yeah, really, really key to, to hold on to that is a really big thing to negotiate for. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say that. That's something you go to all these sorts of GDC talks and people are says, always, always, you know, hold on to your IP. But I've always felt that's, it's not disingenuous. It's just kind of like, I mean, hopefully you can negotiate that. But, you know, if you're a completely, you know, if you're a few students coming out of school and like you don't have a track record or anything, like, you know, I don't know if you're gonna be able to get that term of the contract. I mean, you, you, you fight for it, but be aware that, it's just a term like anything else. And, and, right. you know, I think, I think there's sometimes when it might be better to take more, a higher royalty or more money up front or whatever. If, if you don't think necessarily this is an IP that you're going to work on, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's not an ironclad thing. Like you, you, it's okay to sign a deal if, if the rest of it is, is, is okay. But yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great advice. Yeah, they're, 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 so it's these these trade offs, and and we'll we'll kind of r- wrap this up soon because we're, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time yet again. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think it's important to kind of identify the different things that you could choose to care about. Right? There's yep. sort of how upfront payment and de-risking what you've done and how much work you have to do before you get that. There's a percentage of royalty and how that kicks in and where you you know what you're gonna get for for however long or or ongoing. There's ownership of the IP and creative control. Um, you know, uh, maybe the, uh, there's other things that are relevant here, but those are the those are the big ones that I, yep. I tend to think about. Um, th- is there any other ones I missed that that should be a part yeah, of? Yeah, no, those here? are those yeah. are the, the the key points. And uh, and you know, we were uh, you know, so we had the control of the IP, so it was fairly straightforward. Once they you know, once we separated Starbreeze, then we needed to find other publishers. You know, I mean, we were playing with other publishers you could potentially work with, but we. Um, the 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 best opportunity for us was that Epic was doing these exclusivity deals at the time, um, and they kind of basically you know saved the project because they were able to move in quickly. And you know we had some money in the bank, but we didn't once you know once the checks started coming from Starbreeze, you know that bank account was dropping pretty quickly, right? Yeah. And you know Epic was able to step in, do something, get something going really quick, give us this uh, this 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 ramp to get the game out on early access early. Um, on this emerging platform um, and put ourselves in a really strong foundation as a studio where we knew we're like, okay, now we have the money, not just to finish the game, but to support it for years to come afterwards. Right. And it won't be a situation where if the game doesn't necessarily do as well as we hope, we won't have the money to be able to keep supporting it and making new stuff. And instead we're going to, that money's going to go to pay back the publisher instead. Um, So we felt like that was, that was the, the, the situation that was going to put us in position to make the absolute best game. Um, so that worked out really, really well. Yeah, that's um, great. So if, uh, if we have, uh, we'll do maybe kind of a little, little bit of rapid fire before we close. Cause I have two questions I wanted to ask before the, the last of the things on my list that I wanted to, that's now taken us three hours or so plus right. uh, of time to get to. Um, one is in old world. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that your, your leaders die. Yes, right. <laughs> this is controversial and very unlike the way that, you know, you kind of have these immortal leaders that the sort of uh, in, in all of the pretty much every other Civ style 4X game I could think of where you right. just, you know, okay, you're Cleopatra or Abe Lincoln or whatever. And you just have this sort of immortal leader that kind of takes over, which makes no sense, uh, but it yep. is the trope. And so you've, you, you introduced death. Uh, talk yep. to me about that decision a little bit and, and what, what it felt like to 
to kill yeah. off players constantly. So in parallel, as I was kind of like letting my Forex ideas lie fallow for, you know, seven or eight years between Civ Four and Old World, actually, I suppose it's more like 10 years, um, I saw the emergence of a lot of games that were like very, putting a lot of emphasis into characters. And, and real people, right? And uh, you know, XCOM is a good example of this. But but especially the, the really big one is Crusader Kings. Um, you know, it became a very very popular game, and it's it's sort of like a 4X game. It's a, we, we don't need to go into like the where it differs or doesn't differ. But the main thing the is the secret really... council that controls the names will be listening. So yeah, we don't <laughs> <to> go there. <laughs> yeah, um, but what's really important is you're playing a character. Like yeah, you sort of control a nation, but you're really playing this person. Right. And so you have your own, uh, you know, traits and abilities and things you're good at and things you're bad at, like, I guess, like a role playing game. Right. But you also have these relationships with your your spouse and with your children and with the leaders of other nations and with these important nobles in your in your empire. And those relationships can go up and down and you can get killed. Right. Like you can be playing the game and you get killed and then someone ta- someone else takes over. Um, and so managing the succession is really interesting. And then you can have all these events that are actually grounded in something, right? Like uh, you discover that your cousin, you know, you've heard rumors that your cousin might be trying to poison you, you know, and like, so do you act on that? You know, maybe these rumors are true, maybe they're not. Um, and uh, it just created all of these interesting um, bits of bits of gameplay, things that were this, this kind of texture and detail that really was was mis- just completely missing from the civilization series because it has to function at such an abstract layer you know like um you know early on in the game every turn is like 50 years you know <laughs> like it just it goes so fast that you have to have these kind of weird god rulers right where like yeah it doesn't it, it works fine but it, it's it's not something that you can really put kind of like human human traits and strengths and weaknesses into um and so, so that was, you know, orders was one big bullet point that I, when I was pitching the game, like we're gonna do this different. And the other one was characters. We're gonna put real characters into like a historical 4X, right? So, you know, you're, you're not even gonna be Alexander. You're gonna start as Philip, right? You're gonna start as his dad and you're already gonna be old. Then Alexander will be like a 16 year old, right? And um, you're going to see him him develop, and maybe you keep living longer, or maybe you die, like you know, like Philip did. And Alexander's going to take over as a as a you know young ruler, and you know have his moment, uh, or maybe uh, he's going to get um, crippled in a training accident when he's 18, and he's going to have to become a scholar, you know, instead of a of a great a great warrior, right? And um, we just found that. Um, there was just so much uh, kind of rich gameplay uh, that could be found there um, that also, uh, and here's a really key thing that we didn't necessarily have to teach players, right? Like this is, this is always one of the challenges of making games, especially strategy games. It's like, okay, yes, you can make all these mechanics, but a mechanic is meaningless if you can't somehow explain it to the player, get them to understand what's going on, get them to engage with it, right? So if your mechanics are built off of these arbitrary things, you're just making a bunch of stuff up, which often happens in like sci-fi games or whatever, then you're putting a big load on the player to understand the game. 
if you make a game where you involve characters, everyone understands the idea of like, oh, I get older, so I'm going to get weaker or I'm going to die and this thing's going to happen. Or they understand like I'm going to get married and we're going to have kids and that's going to have these implications. Or um, if I if, if my spouse dislikes me, then maybe we'll stop having kids or maybe this other thing is going to happen. Like people anticipate that stuff. You don't have to explain to them how all the, the rules are going to work, right? Um, yeah. They bring their own experiences into the game. And you know, I found that that was very, very valuable to making uh, old world and engaging an engaging game. Yeah, the more you can leverage people's pre-existing knowledge uh, to to build your mechanics, the 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 more deep and complex a system you could build. Right? That's that's yeah. just true from the basics of I understand what are what you know getting old is like or you know tropes from previous games where it's like okay i understand that if you tell me i'm a mage then probably i can cast spells and i'm not that good in physical combat or if i see a little disc icon i probably that means i use that to save the game even though nobody uses floppy disks anymore (laughs) right right? somehow that's now become the language for saving things and so you know but because we have that as a built i don't necessarily have to teach you that even though most people playing games today have never actually held a floppy disk uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's, uh, it's a weird thing like as a designer you gotta keep contradictory things in your head at, at times like a, a, this is kind of like a good example because um there's this other aspect of this of like realism can be a real trap for games especially historical ones of like yes. oh we want to be as realistic as possible and that often leads designers down bad paths right because then they're they sometimes are making choices that uh you know, yeah, it's not it's just, fun first anymore. Yeah, Realism it's, gets in the way. It's, yeah. nice. it's not fun first. But on the other hand, there's this other thing, what I've just been talking about, like, you know, actually this whole thing about like characters aging and getting sick and getting married and having these things, that's actually sort of realism, right? Like, it's just, it's more like, what do people, it's important to acknowledge the realism that, that comes to people's, to the game from the player in terms of their expectations from how the world works. Yeah. How That's do I what, find the fun in old age and death? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, anything, you know, it, it is important to have a certain level of realism when you're trying to leverage stuff that people know. That's why physics games are really popular. Like there's a lot of successful physics games because you're not, you're not, you don't have to teach people gravity, right? Like right. they already have that, that expectation, right? Yep. Yep. That ability, you know, even just the basics of like the the most simplest forms of play of, you know, throwing a ball around or chasing, you know, there's, there's the basics that uh, these are basic skills and things that we understand. And the more that the, you know, we build games that, that layer onto these building blocks, the more likely we are to a understand them and B be attracted to them because they're skills and relatable things, right? If I'm learning about human relationships and the processes of aging and the consequences of my, how I behave in relationships as, as you can in, in, in old world, that's going to be intrinsically engaging because we're super wired and super fine tuned to care about that sort of thing. Cause that's, you know, how, what, what civilizations are for humans. Yeah. Like we have a weird, a weird tiny little example of that in that uh, how infertility works in old world. Like we're generally speaking, we're very transparent about everything. It's it's a bit of like the digital uh, tabletop game DNA, which is kind of part of our our company. Like we think that like we we think it's really important for a strategy game to be very transparent about how the rules work, so you can anticipate the consequences of your decisions, right? But like infertility is one place we kind of break that because we just feel like it's it's kind of unrealistic. I don't know. It just feels wrong, right? That, you know, you have a character and you see like infertile, right? 
like it just like well how did you know that this 14 year old's infertile right, right. <laughs> especially in the ancient era and it's 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 um you know it's just something that you will eventually infer once they're 40 and they've been married for 20 years and they don't have kids right um and it, 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 you know it, I, I can't come up with a simple explanation of when you should do it one way or when you should do it the other. But like, this is just one place where I'm like, okay, I think we should be realistic here and not actually tell you, even though we're telling you like, Oh, your character's proud and your character's debauched and they're witty and here's their wisdom rating. For some reason, it just felt like wrong to us to actually tell you that this character is infertile. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 it plays into this broader question of, yeah, it's a, the keeping contradict as you mentioned, keeping contradictory things in your head. And then sometimes you have a principle that holds one way. And then there's certain cases where you, you know, your intuition, your playtesting, et cetera, makes you feel that you need to go the opposite. And it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, quirky example of it. Yeah. Um, all right. So we have, in fact, gotten to the end of our time. Um, the okay. last thing I wanted to ask about, we're going to give you, let's say, two two or three minutes to talk about because it's going to be converted into an elevator pitch which is this recent dlc i mean a couple months ago now i suppose uh for old world uh the sacred and the profane and you just chose to make religion the focal point of a of an expansion which is not the first time a civilization style game has done that but uh seems i've, I've purposely avoided religion in any of my caves generally speaking other than you know purely completely fantasy things uh so maybe just talk to me a little bit about that and you can go ahead and maybe give people a, a, a if they're excited about this uh then they where they can go get it yeah i mean we we want to do something on religion just because we feel like it's a really important texture of the era you know this is a time when you have you know kind of the monotheistic religions that became kind of world religions and are still with us today kind of like sitting you know, right next door to, you know, pagan religions and cults and things that, that, that worked much differently than how, you know, really stuff that's, that's practiced today. And, you know, so we felt like there was a lot of kind of fertile ground to do some, some interesting stuff there. Um, and yeah, I know people, um, are, you know, religion is obviously a very sensitive topic. And, um, uh, I was the, I was the person who added religion for the first time to Civ. We, you know, Civ was the first time we, Civ 4 was the first time we kind of named, named names. You know, we, there was Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and, and Hinduism and so on. And, but it, we did it in the, just the most like milk toast way possible because we were super, super anxious about it. Um, you know, like the religions are literally just all the same. Like it's just, just different flavors and it, it kind of just creates a framework for if, if any, I mean, it does a number of things, but one of the most important things it does creates a framework for diplomacy, right? Like, okay, if these two nations have the same religion, they might tend to be friends and they may, may dislike a, a nation that has a different religion, right? Like we literally just kind of wanted, wanted something like that to give some sort of grit to diplomacy. Um, yeah. But over time, Civ Five and Civ Six, and especially a bunch of other games like the, especially the Paradox games, have have moved a lot more forward. They move forward because they saw that, like, okay, <laughs> having having a couple of religions in Civ Four wasn't the end of the world, right? Like, <laughs> we can start to experiment with some of some of these things, and you know, this is part of the human experience, and it's 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 good to have it in there. Um, and at, at a higher level, this DLC. Uh, the sacred and profane is is I'm I'm really excited for it for for a different reason in that I've often um, found it difficult to work on expansions for my games because I kind of view them like 
just in, in my mind, I want there to be kind of like this perfect box of stuff, right? Like everything, everything is necessary for the game is in there. You don't need more stuff, right? Like it's, 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 I, I want it to be perfect. And of course that's not how everything works in practice, but that that's my goal. Right. So it's often hard for me like to finish that and to be like, okay, now time to cram some more stuff in there. Right. Um, and, uh, so I was really, that was the things I, one of the things I was really excited for the event system in old world, because it actually is a place where you can just cram more stuff, right? Like the event system is this essentially deck of like 4,000 cards where each event has a, has a set of like prerequisites. Oh, if you have a leader who's old and is a drunk and has a, you know, as a, as a, as an heir that has these qualities, then this, this card is valid. Right. And there's 4,000 of them. So there's a whole different, bunch of different things that can happen. And in that one situation, variety is basically just a plus. Right, because if um, if you add more cards, it's not going to weigh down the game. It's just going to make the cards you draw different, right, from right. one game to the other. And so, essentially, if people like this, the Sacred and the Profane, the way that DLC works, we could just keep making these kind of event decks uh, indefinitely, right? So, um, I mean, so far it's been very popular. People people really like seeing the new events that come in, and, and we do things like it has a special. This is something important on the business side. It has a special frame when those events come up because, like, we feel like it's important that when people game play a game and they add a DLC, they they want to kind of see their money on the screen. They yeah, want to yeah, yeah. like like oh, this event I got this event because I paid the five bucks or whatever to get the to get the DLC. And presumably, uh, you wait you wait that content a little bit more heavily, at least up front. Uh, that the new stuff's going to show up more often than than the old stuff. Uh, we do a little bit of that, but for the most part. I don't think we, we didn't mess around with it too much because it does kind of hit like this different area. So if you start building these pagan shrines, you're probably going to get some of the new content. So it does allow you Got to it. kind of you, choose. You can opt in to it uh, if you want. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Well, it's awesome. I, I, I love, I love, I'm glad we were finally able to get through all of the things I wanted to get through. I'm sure we could spend another three hours deep diving into various points. So apologies for where I, I had to rush you through some things, but uh, it was fantastic. It's the first ever kind of full two-part episode uh, continuation that I've done and uh, a lot of great content. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the audience loved this as much as I did. So uh, thanks so much for your time, all of your time. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to uh, come out and visit you in person and maybe uh spend another four hours on your podcast uh chatting about more things yeah that would be that'd be great uh there's there's a lot of really good game designers in the dc area i don't know if you've come out here come out here you know i've not i have not been to the dc area since i went on a high school trip so i wow. uh okay. I, will, I will add it <laughs> i am going to add it to my list for sure i think it'd be a great uh, uh you know as a nomad i have a, a fair amount of flexibility in where i go and i think it'd be fantastic to come by and, and spend some time with you yeah well uh, let me know because it'd be, it'd be great to have you on so great Awesome. All right. Well, so until our part three, which will be on your podcast, uh, this is great. See you soon. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.